Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you. I uh, come from Southport, Trinity Church in Southport, where I'm an honorary associate there. And for the past uh, 32 odd years of my 43 years as a Episcopal priest, I've spent it mostly in secular employment as a marriage and family therapist and psychotherapist licensed in New York State. This is a poem entitled Going to Walden by Mary Oliver, a favorite poet of mine, who once said that to pay attention, to pay attention is our one and true vocation. Going to Walden. It isn't very far as highways lie. I might be back by nightfall having seen the rough pines and the stones and the clear water. Friends argue that I might be wiser for it. They do not hear that far-off Yankee whisper how dull we grow with hurrying here and there. Many have gone and think me half a fool to miss a day away in the cool country, maybe. But in a book I read and cherish, going to Walden is not so easy a thing as a green visit. It is the slow and difficult trick of living and finding it where you are. I find it helpful in my life to remind myself that the tools and insights I need for my salvation are always more likely right here and right now than somewhere else. And if I can really pay attention to what is happening now and avoid the temptation to escape the moment in some way, I usually find them. The difficulties I have, what I tend to think of as my flaws and misfortunes, are the very things that point me to the Walden in the poem, a metaphor that Mary Oliver uses for a place that is both a desired process of discovery and a blessed destination. And this is as it should be, because the God we worship wants us to live. God is not the bringer of death, as is noted in our Old Testament reading for today. Death is a process and a destination that God does not want for us. As it reads in the wisdom of Solomon, God did not make death and he does not delight in the death of the living for he created all things that they might exist. The generative forces of the world are wholesome, and there is no destructive poison in them. And the dominion of Hades is not on earth. The difficulties we face in our daily lives are to be overcome, not alone, but together. They are challenges and goals to be completed in the context of community, as Paul reminds us in his epistle to the church in Corinth. They must complete the contribution they started for the church in Jerusalem, so those who have much do not have too much, and those who have too little may not have too little. The work of salvation is found in the context of community. Jesus himself said, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. 
it is obvious that saying one has a relationship with God is completely meaningless without a healthful and responsive relationship with others. It's just nuttiness to say this. I mean, if you can't have a meaningful relationship with those you can see, how can one have a meaningful relationship, and I might add a healthy relationship, with those one can't see? Or as Hillel, the ancient Jewish philosopher, was reported to have said once, if I am not for myself, who am I? And if I am not for others, what am I? And if not now, when? There was a point in time when it seemed that the western half of the world had enshrined independence as the sine qua non of mental health and dependence as the enemy of us all. It, sounded, it seemed to sound at times as though the West was won by people like Billy the Kid. But in truth, those folks died before they were 25. It was the families, the Conestoga wagons, that won the West, risking their lives to begin communities with their families, who had an independence of spirit, to be sure, but who were deeply committed to their neighbors and their communities, and knew that human beings are least powerful and least healthy in isolation. There's an interesting study that the Department of Health did once to try and determine the healthiness of different groups of people in the society. They found that the healthiest group were single women, who always had some money in their purse and always went to their doctor at least once a year, Next were married men. Next were married women. In other words, women took a hit in their health by getting married. And the most unhealthy group were single men. And then we have the Gospel of Mark and the Jewish elder of the synagogue whose daughter is dying, or at least he thinks she is dying. The woman in the crowd who wanted to be cured of her affliction, but who was either too afraid or too frail to get the attention of Jesus. But Jesus, in spite of, in spite of the crowds pressing upon him, felt her presence. Imagine that. And asked her what she wanted. Jesus had this acute awareness of his connection to others, except perhaps when he was asleep and could read people and situations with great clarity and understanding. He often reminded people not to be afraid, but to have faith, to believe. And he did this often with derision in his ears. When he told those standing by that the elder Jewish leader's daughter was asleep, they didn't believe it. As Jesus approached the place where the daughter was, he saw crowds of people weeping and wailing, a real commotion, as the text puts it. Jesus was calm, direct, focused, aware, present. He took in the whole situation. We do not know, we do, we do, we do know that his presence that day did something that kept this story and the woman who was healing by touch, healed by touching his garment, that kept those two things in the records of the life of Jesus, which the church later decided was the true record of his life. We don't really know specifically what happened. But we do know 
that these stories about Jesus were kept by the church. People who don't go to church tend to forget that the church came before the Bible. Before the Bible. Most people talk about the Bible as what happened before the church, but that's not true because it was the church that actually constructed the Bible. People already had a relationship with God. People already worshiped in community. People already knew who God was in their hearts. They were the ones who made the decisions regarding what went into the Bible. <clears throat> what is significant to me about these stories is not really the healings that seem unexplainable, but what it tells me about Jesus and his behavior. And one other thing, Jesus told those present for the healing of the young girl not to tell anyone what happened. He did not want to be known as an itinerant healer. What was important was the dynamic of the healing itself, that is, the faith of those who healed actually did the healing. And Jesus almost always said so to those who tried to thank him. He would say to them, go in peace, your faith has healed you. He meant it. He wasn't being self-effacing. He meant it. Your faith saved you. They were healed through faith, not through fear. Speaking for a minute from a purely scientific perspective, when Jesus said, do not fear but believe, he was, among other things, giving good practical advice because fear robs all of us of the capacity to pay attention. Neuroscientists tell us that when we are afraid, our thinking process is dominated by the paleocortex of our brain. That is to say, the part of our brain that came before the neocortex, which is the one in which we, which we use to think. The paleocortex of our brain, and the paleocortex knows only three possible responses to anything that might happen. And that's it. Only three possible responses. Run, fight, or freeze. That's all it knows. Run, fight, or freeze, no matter what. Those are the choices the paleocortex has. There's no time sense in the paleocortex either, and no contextual sense. And yet most of the feelings reside there, existing in their original terrifying state without time sense or context. In fact, fear can rob anyone of any creative, any creative response and can often lead to disaster if the fear can't be tempered by reason, that is, by intervention from the neocortex of our brain. I once worked with a woman who had at one point in her life been so beaten by her husband that she had difficulty being in a room with any man who even raised his voice. She was sent for karate training, and it sure helped. It helped her enormously because she was able to convert her fear into a sense of physical competence, which helped her feel safe and kept her out of her paleocortex and into her neocortex. She told me, she told me that whenever she would spar in training with a peer, which is what happens when you get to the black belt level, and started to get angry, she would begin to start losing the match. Of course, that's true. And her karate instructor would come up behind her and whisper in her ear, fight smart, not angry. He knew that her anger, which by the way is closely related to fear, as most anger is, was robbing her of her ability to stay present and focused 
in the neocortex of our brain, which was where the control and competence resided. And make, mistake, make, make no mistake about it, um, people tend to think people who are angry are strong. No. 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 Try this sometime. I did. Next time you feel angry, ask yourself what you were thinking before the f switch got flipped. It's going to take a while, because if you're not used to paying attention to your feelings, at first you won't be able to think of anything. But if you keep at it, eventually you will discover something which most people discover, which is that before they got angry, they felt afraid. Fear robs us of the capacity to be aware. And our focus narrows, and our vision becomes less acute at the periphery. We notice less, learn less, and have less capacity to respond creatively and often make things worse. The disciples were often surprised that Jesus could respond so clearly and appropriately in so many different situations where the apostles were running around in their heads trying to figure out what to do next, Jesus was present, focused, and available. He was not a man of fear, but a man of understanding, a man of relationship. He could see what others could not. And he could respond in ways others were unable to do because he was not dominated by fear, but by love, kindness, responsiveness. About 10 years ago, I went to the airport to pick up a psychiatric colleague of mine for years, uh, a psychiatrist friend of mine who's now retired, and I shared the same waiting room. And he went away for a conference on the latest discoveries in the field of neurology and, human, and the human brain. It's about 10 years ago. And when I picked him up at the airport, I said, Don, how was the conference? And on the two-hour drive back to the city, I couldn't get one word in. He talked nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> he was so turned on, he could hardly believe it. I couldn't hardly believe it. Well, it turns out that one of the participants asked the distinguished panel of scientists, that is, the ones who were there who had actually done the research, what they could say was the bottom line regarding all their studies of the human brain. What was their conclusion? And the audience audibly gasped as those hard-nosed researchers said, that according to their research, it seems that the human brain is made for and flourishes in an atmosphere of love and cooperation. After the gasp, Don said, you could have heard a pin drop. Love and cooperation. I'm going to end my sermon this morning with one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. It's Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 4. And it reads this way. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I 
will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you.